Hey there, welcome back to Greater Greener Georgia. I'm Alexis. I'm Miles, and this week we have some news updates that will show you just how big of an impact you can have on your community. That's right. Well, obviously at GCV, we all need to work together as a community to encourage our elected officials to do what's right for us. Ultimately, change starts with you. And first of all, a great example of that is in elections. Yeah, that seems to be the theme of uh, today's episode. If you're listening to the podcast right now, uh, when we release, you, you do still have time to go vote early. Yeah, this podcast is being released on Friday, December 2nd, and today's the last day to vote early in the Senate runoff election in Georgia. But if you can't make it there today, then you also still have Election Day on Tuesday, December 6th. Polls are open until 7 p.m., so make sure you get out and vote while you can. Yeah, and that you know is going to kind of lead me into my topic for the day, which is specifically talking about early voting. Um, everyone has heard by now, I'm sure, that the early voting turnout for the elections in November was huge. Um, and we've just repeated that now with this Senate runoff race. So the, actually the previous best uh, single day um, voting record was 300,000 in Georgia. And that was actually really shattered on a Monday with nearly half a million votes cast. Um, so that's just in one day, which is, really crazy. Um, and a lot of people showed up. It's a huge number. Um, and, and a huge percentage of that 500,000 here in Georgia was young voters and black voters. So that's kind of what I wanted to specifically talk about, um, uh, today. And so just to clarify, 500,000 people voted in one day, just in this Senate runoff race, right? Yeah, exactly. So so people are waiting. You know, we were talking about this yesterday, almost an hour or more potentially mm -hmm. sometimes in early voting, not to discourage people, but it's just the truth of people waiting an hour really just to go vote for one person. Um, yeah. So it takes, you know, five minutes to vote, but you're you're waiting, waiting a while. But five um, minutes, it takes like 15 seconds. <laughs> I was I was counting in the fact we had to go get your like, you know, your key card oh, and you right, have to sign right. in and everything, you know, yeah, it literally takes five seconds to press the button. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, you know, again, not <laughs> discouraging people from voting, but it, you know, it does take some time. Mm -hmm. Um, And all this turnout was even after the state and national Republican parties fought against providing early voting on um this past Saturday, which I think we talked about in our last podcast, um, they're arguing in court that the state law would prohibit that Saturday voting since it fell two days after Thanksgiving and one day after that state holiday, which is state day. I forget what it's called in Georgia, but it's a that holiday mm -hmm. after oh, Thanksgiving. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the Georgia Supreme Court ruled actually against them. So then more then 69,000 voters cast their ballot in at least 28 of Georgia's 159 counties on Saturday, and another 87,000 ballots were cast on Sunday. So that was a huge bump. Yeah, that's really so amazing that so many people got to vote in that weekend right after Thanksgiving because the courts were being kind of crazy around that. But 
I know that there's a lot more specific numbers about people who have early voted so far, and I'm interested to hear more. Yeah, we can get into the nitty gritty, I guess. It's going to yeah. be a lot of numbers here, but <laughs> um, they're they're very interesting to look at. Black Georgians led the way with 84,218 ballots cast, making up 49.2% of the electorate over the weekend. And with just over 2 million active Black voters, Black turnout was 4%, uh, 4.1% heading into Monday. White Georgians represent 35.3% of the electorate with 68,883 ballots cast. And with more than 3.6 million active white voters, white turnout was 1.9%. So more white voters cast their ballot on Monday, which did surpass black voters in raw numbers. But black turnout remains higher relative to the population. With 244,000 votes cast, white turnout stood at 6.7%. And with 192,000 votes, Black turnout was at 9.4%. So maybe a little confusing. There were actually more votes cast by white voters, but because of the population numbers and everything, it's a higher percentage of Black voters are turning up. Mm -hmm. Um, Relative to their population. Exactly. Yeah. So this is a normal trend that usually happens, but with women outvoting men, but it did happen again over the weekend of the votes cast before Monday, 103,984 or 57.2% of the vote belong to women, while 77,228 or 42.5% were cast by men. Um, these numbers kind of evened out, but Um, over the weekend and slightly on Monday, but it still had women voting 55.4% of the vote. Um, So that that's really interesting. And that that usually happens in in most elections. I'm I'm, uh, under my understanding as doing research for this. Um, But it's uh, still an interesting number to look at. Um, Another big one was the Georgia's youngest voters also made a a really good show over the weekend, um, but only like the very youngest bracket. So that's the 18 to 24. So they represented 9.9% of total electorate with um, just over 18,000 votes cast. By Monday, more older Georgians showed up, bringing the 18 to 24 total to 5% of the turnout. So it lowered it a bit because more older folks were voting on Monday. Um, But it did seem like a lot of the younger people were possibly back for Thanksgiving. So that extra Saturday voting really helped that number increase. A lot of people were coming back from college from out of state and voting in Georgia, which was, um, you know, gave um, that young 18 to 24 a big boost. Um, And, you know, kind of to wrap it up, I guess, overall, uh, I think it's really incredible that the the voting turnout is reflecting Georgia and its new, you know, trends of shifting to a more diverse community. We've talked about it a lot on the podcast. Um, just a ton of numbers, but in my opinion, they're they're all pretty positive, um, showing that younger voters and black voters are turning out. And um we we do need we we do still need younger voters. I think the 24 to 29, I think is the next range up. And I know it's like really tough. I'm in that range myself. And I feel like with all the doom and gloom of the world these days, it's kind of hard to go out and and cast your vote when you kind of think maybe it's not important or or nothing is going to come out of it. Um, but a big percentage 
of the people that do turn out are the 50 to 70 year olds. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of these important decisions that are being made by folks that are not you. So you should be trying to put your voice out there, you know, and try and make what little difference you can. I mean, a lot of these big topics that we talk about, you know, when we say doom and gloom are hard to do anything about, I guess, on an individual level, but you can go out and press the button and vote individually. It's like something solid you can do. Yeah. And it is. Yeah. It's a small step, but it um, all adds up at the end of the day. And just also, as you were talking just now, I opened back up that website that we've mentioned on here before, georgevotes.com, just to give a little update. So far in the runoff election, over a million people have voted. It's almost 1.2 million people. Um, And as of the time we're recording this, there's still a few days left of early voting. Um, And then also just to give a quick update on the uh, categories by age, the voters by age, um, 18 to 29 now is actually the lowest turnout percentage wise, unfortunately, yeah. but it's still pretty high. It's still basically 7% of the. Yeah. Electorate. Yeah. I mean, I feel like the bump probably came up just uh, specifically over the weekend and then now yeah. it's kind of evening for out, but home for things. Yeah. Um, but you so definitely anyway, look really impressive. What was the website URL again? So people can look. It's called georgiavotes.com. And from what I remember, it's just someone, all the early voting data is public. Um, yeah. And this guy just checks the data from the voting history every day and updates the website every night. Yeah. Um, and it's really interesting. I, I like to scroll through it as a as a voting nerd and see yeah, what, who's voting <laughs> and what's going on in the elections. Um, so we're going to switch over to our other topic of the day, um, which has to do with the Georgia Water Coalition's Dirty Dozen report. So every year, the Georgia Water Coalition releases this report, which typically highlights the worst polluters of Georgia's waters around the state. But this year, however, in honor of the 50th anniversary of the passage of the Federal Clean Water Act, the report details Georgia's landmark legal cases that relates to this act that have enabled significant restoration of Georgia's streams, rivers, lakes, and estuaries. What what is the history of the Clean Water Act? So we have some context behind that. Yeah. So basically in the 1960s, water pollution was really taking over the headlines around the country and people were starting to grow louder and louder about wanting to get this issue under control, um, especially in the state of Georgia. And so in 1972, the Clean Water Act came to a vote and President Richard Nixon at the time actually vetoed the Clean Water Act because he had concerns about how much money was going to be spent on it. It was around $24 billion dollars. Uh, However, the Senate and the House at the time responded to the popular sentiment of the people and voted to override um, his veto of the bill, putting it into effect. And um, just to directly quote from the Georgia Water Coalition's report, since the Clean Water Act's passage, Georgians have watched their streams, rivers, lakes and estuaries in most cases steadily improve. And what's more, the Clean Water Act's goal of making all the nation's water bodies swimmable and fishable has been embraced by the population of Georgia. So even if there were people who initially were skeptical of the passage of this act, overall, it's had a really positive impact. Yeah, that's really cool. And um, hearing that Congress, uh, you know, kind of vetoed this veto or, you know, it's yeah. kind of interesting to hear about. And it seems like a lot of progress has been been made since then, making every national water body swimmable and fishable seems like yeah. a like a dream <laughs> yeah that's the goal and there has been a lot of progress and 
Uh, so in the report from this year, the Georgia Water Coalition is sticking with their theme of a dozen, kind of. So they've recognized 12 landmark legal decisions that have furthered the goals of the Clean Water Act, specifically in Georgia. Um, to just kind of summarize all the cases, they include situations that forced municipalities to upgrade their sewer infrastructure um, in Atlanta, demanded compliance from industries that were polluting waters, confirmed stormwater runoff as a pollutant regulated by the Act and by the EPA, um, elevated the Clean Water Act's importance in the protection of wetlands, and has even forced the federal government into compliance with its own law. Um, also, the majority of these legal decisions were initiated by citizens and grassroots organizations who are demanding clean water in their communities. That's thanks to a provision in the Clean Water Act that allows citizens to sue polluters when state and federal regulators fail in their duties. Wow. So regular people can sue dirty water too, not just agencies like the EPA. Yeah. And so I'm actually going to go into one of the cases that really talks about this specifically. I found it really interesting. The name of the case is Michael and Linda Burkhalter versus Claxton Poultry Farms. Um, so basically, there's this woman named Linda Smith at the time. I think Linda Burkhalter is, must be her married name. But the whole case talks about Linda Smith. And she and her family grew up by the Canoochee River. Uh, that was her childhood paradise. This case talks about how after school in the 60s and 70s, she and her siblings would spend their afternoons and evenings by the river, swimming and playing in the cool air and the clean water. However, by the 1990s, the water was completely polluted and unswimmable because upstream, a chicken processing facility was causing the water to be covered at times with a thick, slimy, floating mat of algae. Uh, very disgusting, not swimmable. Yeah. <laughs> um, so Lisa took her camera and started documenting the issue and getting attention out there. Um, and some attorneys and graduate students nearby started looking more closely into the issue. Um, eventually, the Clean Water Act lawsuit filed by the Smith family in 2000 ultimately forced Claxton Poultry to create a new land application system and secured funding to start the Canoochee Riverkeeper, which is a nonprofit citizen organization dedicated to monitoring and protecting the river. So overall, this made Claxton Poultry have to follow a lot more strict regulations so that they weren't just dumping their waste into the river. Um, however, <laughs> you know, not every story ends perfectly. Despite upgrades to Claxton Poultry's wastewater management system, it is still possible that the facility is polluting the groundwater, which in turn pollutes the Canoochee River still. Because uh, even though the water itself looks a lot cleaner, Linda Smith has said that the once snow white sandbar in the middle of the river is still discolored and overgrown. The river does still show signs of algae with black slime coating the sandy river bottom from time to time. So even though the situation hasn't been 100% fixed, it does still show how powerful individual citizens can be in enforcing clean environmental standards in their communities. Like Linda basically single-handedly took a camera and was like, it's time, this river is dirty, let's do something about it, which I just find really cool. Yeah, it's really amazing. And and to, to hear the story behind it too, of her growing up swimming there, and she's the one that knows noticed the change and everything. That's um, really cool that she was able to kind of initiate a response to that problem um, that was causing so much pollution in her community. And so, yeah, just to kind of wrap up our episode today, I definitely feel like the biggest takeaway is that individual people really do have the power to make such a big difference 
in their communities. It's kind of like a domino effect. Like one person can't change anything alone, but one person can start the ripple effect throughout their communities to make a bigger change, whether it's by voting or speaking out against polluters or even just making your friends and neighbors aware of issues that are directly impacting them. It was a, a, a powerful theme for today for episode mm-hmm. 37, which you know brings me to the end where we have one more episode this year which is amazing and you can kind of go back on anywhere you listen to your podcast and listen to all 36 other episodes we have but yeah thank you for tuning in and we'll talk to you next time